When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's Yas here and I'm calling today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT, live on Twitter space, if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, it's slightly different and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joa will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you can let me know your thoughts on the new format and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at The Coaches Net. Once again, that is at The Coaches Net. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. So Gerard, how many practices should I use in my session, man? I don't think there's a definitive answer, but I mean, I definitely won't be doing more than if we're talking about practices, I'm assuming we're talking about the same thing in the sense of an activity. So an exercise, people use different terms. You might hear some people talk it as a, the describe as a drill or whatever. We can go into that, but I'm only reflecting on my own work where I probably think about, I've got an arrival activity or some kind of starter activity, which can be effectively the, the, the warm up to prime them. It's an activation. Sometimes it isn't because I've done sessions at PDP level, uh, professional development phase or with pros where they've already done the one with the S&C guys at Sports Science and <clears throat> that's either been with a ball or without a ball. Um, in Morocco, it was interesting at national level because we used to try and do everything with a ball. But then a lot of the sort of physical uh, preparation guys, they would basically be almost anti that they would just do a lot of dynamic movements and different types of physical work without a ball and then they would come over to us so they would do that for a period of time and then come over but you know I think without overcomplicating or overthinking it because it can depend because there's different people here that I'm looking at who are listening they're working at very different levels you've got people working at college level People work at a grassroots level. People work in the academy game. So I thought I'd just share a couple of examples there. I mean, typically I would always start with an arrival activity, a starter activity to prime the learning, intentional free play. It could be linked to their individual, um, uh, you know, plans, but or as well as the sort of principles that you're working on that session. From that, I would then that would phase into my main work, my main body of work. So I'd have like a core practice, if you like. So I'd, I'd start off with, and then I'd probably finish on some sort of tactical game-related activity. 
so there'll probably be about maybe three or four practices at max within one particular session, if that makes sense. Um, I think it's interesting that I've seen a lot of people jump from practice activity to practice activity to practice activity. And, this, you know, there could be an argument that it could be too much or too much going on within the practice. I think what's interesting is how you design practices and you don't necessarily have to move on to the next thing because what's wrong with staying on what you're doing already? And that could be another topic maybe in tonight's conversation, but equally there's times where I'm still working within the same stuff and I'm getting out a lot and I can stay with it. I've done many sessions where effectively I've probably only done one or two practice activities within the session, but we've still walked away going, Poof, and the players have enjoyed it. And we just managed to do loads of little progressions within that. So it can depend based on obviously needs of the players and what's in front of you. But I think if you were to talk of, you know, a benchmark, and I typically do a lot of stuff which is similar to what the the FA are rolling out now with the new UEFA C where it's a lot of it's not new. It's you know, it's been around for donkey's years, you know, uh, around whole part hole and you look at, you know, teaching games for understanding and Bunkner and all these people years ago um, and even play practice, which is 60s, 70s, etc. So it's not a new methodology. Um, but typically, you know, I would do a lot of sessions like that or over here we talk about play, practice, play. So again, just to reiterate, I'd start off with an arrival activity. I'd then go into some sort of play phase, whether it's small groups, small area work, uh whether it's positional possession, evolving into some sort of core practice, whether it be, as I say, a positional possession or a phase of play of some kind. And then within that, there would be individual difference. And then obviously then it'd be more your tactical uh, match prep or a larger sided game of some kind. But it doesn't always have to follow that sort of progressive model, if you like. It could still be where I'm still within the same practice and I haven't really gone out of one or two practices, but I'd be interested to know what Tony thinks and, and what you you know your, you guys think as well. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot in there. I think you know the, the first and foremost, you know, the, the point that you started with right at the top, it's not definitive. I don't think there is a definitive answer to this, and I think it is really based on the environment and the context of who you're working with more than anything else. But just before I kind of really deep dive on my thoughts on that. Guys, you know, I can see the room is, you know, is getting is getting busier. Um, if anyone that hasn't already, feel free to just uh, reshare that to your pages, the, the, the session itself, so that people can know the conversation is taking place. And if you haven't already, follow myself and Gerard, because um, we are here every single week. Um, I know we weren't here last week, but we are here most weeks um, on a Sunday evening, having coaching discussions, hopefully growing a network of like-minded individuals that want to support one another um, and get better at what we do. Um, but yeah, my my thoughts are quite simple. Then, to be honest, Gerard. I mean, you know, like you said, not it's not definitive. But I think one of the things I've, I've definitely observed in my time, and it's a conversation I've been having many coaches over the over the recent weeks and months that I've been supporting in different capacities, is that when it comes to looking at your, how many practices you should use, I don't even think that's a question you should necessarily consider straight away. I think it's looking at what the focus of the session is. Um, but one of the biggest considerations I want coaches to think about is whether they're adding variations or progressions to their sessions rather than actually developing the practice further. And what I mean by that, just to give a bit more clarity, is if your topic, let's just say, for instance, is passing and receiving, as an example, 
you know, you're going to have set key outcomes that you're looking to re- looking to achieve within that set, within that set practice or session. Don't just keep putting on practices that are different, but are touching on the same points, if you like. Now, yes, there's going to be universal points which cover across that topic, but think about the context of what the practice is that you're actually delivering right now and ask yourself, if I move this on to another, another practice, is the context changing? And if it is, should I really be changing the context of the session right now? Just to give a bit more clarity on that, what I mean is you might be doing a passing receiving session, which is really based on the context of playing in the midfield third, as an example. Now that in itself would be very different to the context of what might happen in the final third or the defending third, if you like. So really that variation piece, if there's going to be any variation, I don't think it should be done within the same session. However, what we should choose to do is progress it and get deeper on the finer detail of that particular context that we're working on. Now, I know that this can be often a misunderstanding for a lot of coaches and I really want to just clarify and it'll be good to get your view on this as well, whether you agree or disagree, that a variation is not the same as a progression. A lot of coaches I see deliver different types of practices and they go from one practice to the next and say that this is a progression, but actually it's not any more complex. It hasn't got more difficult in any in any particular way. It's not more challenging for the players. So I, I struggle to see how it's much of a progression. And if it's not necessarily more challenging, you haven't necessarily gone into necessarily to find the detail that might be required to take that skill that they're currently working on from, let's say, a 5 out of 10 as an example to maybe a 6 or a 7. So I think if you're not hitting on any of those points there, then you're quite simply putting on a variation. And the question I ask coaches to consider for themselves is, why are you putting on a variation? Is it for you or is it for them? Because... Another thing that I think we probably both would agree on is over our years of experience and observations is that a lot of coaches put on variations because it allows them to feel like they're having an impact on the session and maybe aren't considerate enough of how to actually progress it and get down to maybe the granular detail, which is going to take it up a notch, if that makes sense. I think that's the first piece. And I think, you know, you mentioned briefly there about the UEFA-C piece and, you know, the practice spectrum that they're kind of bringing into that side of things. And quite rightly, some of these ideas aren't new at all. They've been around for years, not just years, but decades. And I think because it's not been quote-unquote mainstream, it's become very difficult for coaches who are not maybe uh, haven't really familiarised themselves with that or haven't cho- chosen to kind of maybe learn more about their craft. They're all looking at it as, you know, people are trying to change the face of coaching. Well, actually, these are ideas that which have been around for a long time. And I think when you delve deeper into the understanding of the research and just the application of these things, there's, you know, the, the argument isn't necessarily that the quote-unquote old or traditional way of coaching isn't effective, but the argument is more so that maybe some of these more in-trend or modern-day methods that people are trying to really touch on are probably more impactful. And I quite, I quite often, you know, one of the, one of the real interesting things is whenever a quote-unquote new concept comes out, people always ask you, well, how do you know that works? But they're not actually. They're not. They know. At the same time, they're never really able to answer that question for the way they're currently working either. So how do they know what they currently do works? And again, the argument isn't that it's not working, but it's is it working as well as it could be? So I think that's just something else to consider. And obviously, within that, it's the variation progression piece. Coming back to that briefly, it's that old old question of is it depth versus breadth? If we're just glossing over different things, which constantly changing the practice, are we really allowing the players to understand? 
the practice they're in or the activity they they're participating in. Um, and if not, why are we doing it? We really need to be able to get to a point where players and you know this is the coach's responsibility. You're setting an environment that the players eventually get to a point where they they don't actually need us. We're just there as a point of reference if they want us rather than them having to rely on us. And that's typically what tends to happen on that side of things. Um, and another brief uh, point that you did make at the start as well around the physical performance stuff and the preparation for that. I think there is there is a case for wanting to have the ball involved as often as possible. But I think equally there is an element of actually understanding that physical prep, depending on the age and stage of the player as well, that, um, that sometimes that stuff might need to be just done without a ball because there might be some specific movements for individuals. But... You know, obviously, that comes down to the individual itself, the type of uh, you know exposure that they're getting from the physical side of things. Is it the coach delivering that? Is it someone who's specifically trained and, and has the expertise to understand what type of movements are specific to that position or that player? Um, and even that practice. So, for instance, you might be doing a practice on playing out from the back, as an example, or passing and receiving. If I use that example again, I think for coaches to start consider where you don't maybe have a physical performance coach or anything of the sort to kind of support you, Ask yourself, what are the types of movements these players are actually making or actually required to make in my session in order to be impactful and effective and see how many of those you can maybe recreate, whether with or without a ball, in your warm-ups, if you like, so that they are able to do that effectively as possible when it comes to actually delivering in the practice itself. Now, there's a lot on there. I've rambled on a bit, but um, hopefully something for you to kind of think about. Um, and considering your know, existing practices and going forward, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Joe. And Tony, it would be great to get some of your views as well. Yeah, I wouldn't mind just uh, just jumping in super quick because I think there's loads there. And it'd be, again, it's great to get Tony's wisdom and, and everyone's in the room. I mean, I think with the last piece you're talking about, uh, it's interesting when I reflect on my work with Oshan uh, Roberts and with the Moroccan national teams and what have you, because we would have that preparatory physique, as they call it, the, or the entraîneur. Uh, physique, which is like your physical trainer, and they would basically do a lot of that, but it'd be very individualized based on again movements that people needed to get better at. Or, um, I mean, the guy who was doing it, he's a, he's a PhD, so they had a tra- they had a, a whole group of uh, physical preparators, but then they also had yeah, your big guy, uh, called Christoph Maneuver, who works with the, the first team, he worked with Leon and what have you. And he goes into the real metabolic detail um, with links to everything, you know. So there was like another level to it, which was going on like your, your biological movements, your physical movements, your sleep. Obviously, he'd be looking into your blood and he'd be trying to get information from that. That would be another level type of stuff. I don't know how relevant that is here. Then there's the other side of it where you even at academy level or grassroots where you're just trying to develop those motor skills and physical literacy aren't you it's almost like creating this performance playground where kids are able to interact with the environment you know so i see a lot of a lot of teams now are introducing parkour into their movements not just multi-skills you see a lot of academies just to develop the physical literacy and the the ability to evade space agility twist and turn be adaptable movers because again those are skills that they the need in the in the modern game in football i mean talking about the other piece just in summary we could be it could be semantics i don't know be interested in what everyone else thinks but it comes back to that piece what we talked about last time which was the communication so if we say something what do we mean so to me excuse me a variation is a is a change 
or a difference in condition or like a constraint or something. It would be it'd be a change or a difference. So you could be still doing the same practice activity, but you've changed the, the rules slightly. You still work on the same principle, but you might just adapt it slightly to elicit certain behaviours or to maybe improve it to make it more realistic or more challenging for the players in different ways, whether it's the way in which they score or another constraint. That that would be my definition of a variation, that difference in a condition or whatever. If I think to a progression, it's interesting because the French use the word evolution. So I always think to the progression would be something where, again, it's a, a gradual development of something from going from simple to more complex. And I think that's quite interesting because that's how we simplified it. So we saw the evolution of a practice going from something where it's one stage and now you gradually, I guess the easiest way to do it would be that linear progressive model, which we were all trained on, which was technique, skill, game. That could be an easy way for everyone to grasp their head around of that evolution or progression. You've gone from one type of practice into a more complex practice, into the bigger complex practice, which is the game. But of course, you can still do that even in whole part, whole play, practice, play, whatever it is. Even within a game form, you can still make things from simple to complex based on the number of players on the field, whether it's small numbered, small area, or whether it's becoming more larger area, where they might get less touches, but there's more potentially other decisions to make. Um, so that would be my definition for everyone, just to try and help. And I think. You know, it's interesting when you talk about, um, you know, principles and what we're working on and what have you. I think in any session design, we've got to think about individual difference. So no matter what the activity is, we could be doing a very simple multi-pitch, 2v2, 4v4. We could be doing a 4v4 plus 4 activity. We could be doing a, we could be doing a phase of play, attack v defence. It doesn't really matter. But within that same practice, whatever we're working on, our training goals, what's the individual difference within the design of the practice, whether it be for a certain rule or a goes back to like step, doesn't it? You know, uh, whether it's a piece of equipment, whatever it may be, a cone, a marker, safe zone, whatever it is, how we design an individual difference, whether it's we're putting players in duels within the practice or certain competition, that can help develop that individual. And I think the challenge then for coaches is just recognising that you can stay with the same thing. So to your point around a variation, you'd always have to progress or deprogress, which would be make it more challenging or less challenging. Sometimes you can just stay within the same thing, but you vary the practice slightly. And you can that could be till the end. And I think there's a lot of work around desirable difficulties. So anyone listening, I would encourage you to look at Bjork, Desirable Difficulties, where he talks about um, basically interleaving uh, information principles within a session. So you can work on different things, but you're into it's like an holistic approach. You're interleaving lots of versus isolating and focusing on one thing you can actually vary stuff and interleave information. So that might offer a different perspective. And then you've got retrieval, which is how are you using the practice, the game, questions, to again, just check for understanding within the practice versus assuming that they know we move on quickly. And then equally space, because I think 
whether you're working in blocks of work within the session, however many progressions or whatever you've got, challenges, questions, how many times a sessions you've got, the volume, these are all questions to ask. Like how long is that activity running for? And then space space between learning is important because you've got to be able to have time to be able to join the dots. And that space will look different for different people. And I think often what I see in summary is a lot of coaches who coach, but they coach the session plan. They don't necessarily coach what's in front of them. So they'll go, right, my next progression is this. I've got to move on. Well, actually, the kids might be really good at that. Like, maybe we didn't design it well enough. Was it organized? Is the practice organized? Because if it's not, it's not going to be realistic. Once we've achieved that organization, then we can look at, all right, is it realistic? Is there relevant repetition without repetition? Is there is there a repetition of a focus here? Is it challenging? Are we able to support the players? Is it competitive? It's almost like a sequential list. Um, and I think it's an interesting way to look at it if we're thinking about the number of versus the quantity of activities in a practice and what's the right number. Perhaps we should be thinking about the quality. And we might just be able to stick with one. And within that, vary or evolve whatever we want to term we want to use, but really focus on the individuals before we move on versus just moving on for the sake of moving on because that's what's on my session plan. Do you see what I'm saying? Like I've got 90 minutes, that my progression two is done, I've got to move on to progression three. Well, I might not achieve all that. I, I think there's some great points there. You know, just, just before Tony jumps in, I just want to kind of just touch on those. I think first and foremost, I think you're spot on, you know, in terms of the variation piece about progress, you know, I guess uh, increasing or decreasing the challenge within the practice. But I don't think the practice itself needs to change. And I think one of the things coaches should take away from that is that if you're constantly bringing in new practices, you, then you're also now having to rely on the, the speed and efficiency of the of the players actually being able to understand those practices quick enough so you don't spend more time actually talking about the practice rather than the, the content of the session itself. I think secondly, it's, you, you know, you, you hit, a, you hit a, a really good uh, nail on the head in that a lot of coaches have it on their session plan. They coach the session plan rather than the coach what's in front of them. And I think plenty of time, what I've often said to coaches is, if you have it on your session plan that it's going to go X, Y, Z order um, and they don't get to where you need to get them to and you've still got one or two, maybe even three progressions to go, you've probably failed in your planning because you probably haven't really looked at and assessed just where those players are at. And I think there's another key piece in that and this is something I really, really, I think coaches should just take away more than anything else is that if we're not checking constantly the understanding of the individual's within the practice that they've actually got the messages we want them to get across, then we're in no position to progress anything or even regress it. I think there's a lot of times where players are going to be able to perform things, but do not be fooled in that that means they understand what they're doing or how to, how to achieve it or recreate those moments again. We need to constantly be checking understanding and that's not by asking them, do you understand? It's actually a principle which I like to use, which is called show or tell. They, they may be able to tell me and that's fine, but at, at some point, more than anything else, they're going to have to be able to show me their understanding. And it's not just by me observing, but actually them outright, this is what I'm doing. This is the reason why. So it might be through questioning, right? Can you tell me what you would do in this situation here, Gerard? 
and what might impact on your on your ability to perform that action or that outcome if you like and i think that, that piece is really key and then you know just the, just the final piece and you know one of the real key things i really want to kind of highlight you know i set out on this coach development journey and more more specifically with the coaches network podcast to try and simplify some of the literature and the academic academia that's out there for a lot of coaches that maybe don't quite understand or don't maybe take well to the language that's often used so i kind of want to just touch on that one little phrase that you use there jordan it's that repetition without repetition and really help coaches to understand what that means and where that comes from now this isn't a new saying it's, it's, it's something that's been around for a, a long time um it is actually a motor sci- motor learning scientist um, who came up with the phrase a guy called nikolai bernstein now Essentially, repetition without repetition is just basically looking at the concept of not repeating an outcome, not repeating an action. So it's not, if you're like a typical session where you just get in place to constantly practice an inside turn or an outside turn or a coif turn or anything like that. In fact, it's actually providing a challenge in which the players or the athletes in this case are able to repeat the process of finding the solution and not reenacting one. So I think that is really key for coaches to understand in terms of that phrase, what it actually means and potentially how to get closer to achieving that within your own sessions. So just to kind of, you know, reiterate, it's the process of finding the solution and not reenacting one. So the yeah, it's, often, it's, it's, oh, sorry, mate. No, no, I was just going to say, so more often than not, what we tend to find is coaches directing players to perform a certain action but actually not really supporting them with the underpinning or the build around the context of why they're doing that action or where they may be able to apply it. So it's really about helping those players unpack that part of the process. And if we are truly working, and this isn't for everyone, you might not be, but you or, and there's no right or wrong necessarily, but we want to hopefully get players to a point where they can self-analyse, self-critique, but self-solve problems. And we can only do that by putting them in situations where they're able to actually make decisions and be afforded the opportunity to also get it wrong. Sorry, George, you was going to say something. No, this is perfect. I mean, for me, I always say repetition with repetition is where people are, are focusing on that same ideal technical solution. They've got this ideal technical model of how to perform that pass or how to perform this technique or skill or decision. And it's done so under the same conditions, the same constant uh, scenario. But we know that's not the game. The game is unpredictable, dynamic and random, chaotic. So repetition without repetition is that ability to work on those principles, but under changing circumstances. And the more game like that activity is, we can still be working on that principle of the ability to break a line or the sub-principles or whatever it may be. But we're doing so because it's within a game, so it's going to be random. It's going to be more uh, chaotic, more unpredictable. So the, that player will face different scenarios. It won't be I receive on the back foot here and I pass to this player. I stood on this cone, and that's a constant because then I'm playing the I'm playing the drill, not the game. That's repetition with repetition. Whereas repetition without repetition is that ability to work on those decision-making solutions, but you're self-regulating. So you're looking for information from the environment and it will change because the defender might be behind me, the defender might be in front of me, the gap might be open and I can split them with one pass. Next time, it might be, how do I break a line with a dribble and just all oh, with my first touch? So because of the nature of the, the, the game that you've created, 
players will get repetition of a learning focus without repetition because it'll be slightly different each time. And that's good because now you're developing, to your point, those self-learners, that self-adaptable, self-regulating footballer. Um, no, it's really cool. It'd be great to hear you know, what everyone else is thinking on a lot of the information we shared. Definitely, definitely will be. So, Tony, we'll bring you on in a second. Just before we do that, guys, you know, just to recap, myself and Gerard are here every single Sunday um, discussing just anything and everything coaching related. Generally, the, the topics of the conversations have come through questions which have been put to us um, that we've opened up and essentially want to share with you guys and get your views and get your thoughts as well as share our own opinions and views. So if you have any insights, views or opinions that you want to share or any questions that you want to hear discussed on the show, please do let us know. Um, in the meantime, if you haven't already, please make sure you're following myself and Gerard. Share this space so everyone knows that it's taking place um, and just keep an eye out for the conversations that's happening in the future. Um, but Tony, over to you, man. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's a, there's a lot to take in in the, in the sort of half an hour that's gone on before, but there's just a couple of points that, that I'd kind of pick up on. The first one really... Around the title of the um, of the of the evening, I guess. How many practices should I use? A um, couple of points from me. Firstly, in a ninety-minute session, which is generally what I would have worked in, um, I would have if we discount warm-up and cool-down, whichever is obviously everybody should do. I'd probably do three maximum, some kind of. Arrival activity, passing type drill, rondo, some technical work around the topic that we want to work on. And then for me, getting them into a game activity as quickly as possible. Because the Gerard mentioned at the end there, um, random, unpredictable, chaotic. That is the game. So whatever else we do before in that controlled environment has to be able to be um, repeated or it has to come out in that in that type of environment in that game environment um, uh, so that was sort of one of the first things uh, you mentioned warm-ups earlier on and again Gerard mentioned his work with the Moroccan Association um, and, and where you've got all these people surrounding your football teams um, I think that sometimes Obviously, it's great to have the expert knowledge, but everybody seems to want a slice of the pie. So the uh, the physical trainer wants to do his bit and, you know, that's all well and good. But actually, most coaches could put on a decent warm-up that is multidirectional, which includes the ball right from the start. I have a particular favourite one, um, which I, for me, uh, you know, as a physical training instructor of, of 20-odd years, experience it ticks all the boxes and it uses the ball from start to finish it includes dynamic movements but it's also in the context of the game it uses football related activities um, and it includes scanning depending on how many footballs you use so you've you've both touched on it at different points about nothing's new nothing you know it's all been done before it's just people either recycle it or rename it so whether you believe in um, whole part whole which again I'm not a big fan of uh, particularly when you work into a syllabus because if you if you've planned to do something and it's already going well in your whole part 
in, in the whole section, why would you stop it and break it down to do something that they're already doing well? Um, I guess my last point would be that if you feel that your players are best suited to doing a warm-up, going into a some sort of a game-related practice, uh, and I'm a big fan of attack against defence because I think it takes all boxers. Uh, if you did that for the best part of 90 minutes, your players are going to get loads out of it because that's what their game looks like at the weekend. It doesn't look like a drill. It doesn't look like boxers. It doesn't look like a rondo. But actually, they can trans. The better players will get the game appreciation of how the rondo transfers into the game. And if they don't get it, then that's where you can help them. So if something happens in a game or in in, in the game related practice that you did in the rondo, just got, can you remember when we did that bit? And then the little light bulbs start to come on with your players, in my opinion. I think that's some great points there. And I just want to touch on something really key that you mentioned about the whole part, whole thing. I, I, I actually don't have a, you know, a, a preference for using whole part, whole either. But what I would say is that I think a whole part, whole in itself, if done correctly, in my opinion, is actually quite a complex and a high level process because I don't disagree that you can break it up and move into a part, but what you need to be prepared for is that the part that you might have initially wanted to go into is not the part that they any, any, any more need. So it might be that actually you look at your topic as an overall arching thing and you ask yourself, right, what are the different things that could arise within this based on my experience, my observations and things I know about my players and have about maybe three, four, maybe even five different parts which might actually then need to be broken down into. Because if you went into that session with one part in mind and that part hasn't actually been an issue for you in the initial hole, if you like, why would you break it down? But you might find something else within there, that first hole, and the real key part of that is about the observation skills of the coach. What are you seeing? Are you only looking for the part that you've actually designed or are you looking for what actually needs further development and improvement? Yeah, I guess I'll just leap in there in case the, the world goes dead. Um, I th yeah, you're, you're 100% right. It, it is the difference between, um, I guess, the inexperienced coach who goes into coach whole part whole with his session plan in his hand or on his clipboard or or already written out on night nice and neat on on the whiteboard and somebody who has that experience to say well actually we were going to work on that but that's not working very well tonight so I'm now going to do that bit you've then got to have that broad uh, background knowledge of different sessions or different practices that you can now call on other than the one that you had in your head when you when you left home an hour ago a hundred percent i think just on top of that as well you know when you're when you're going into that planning stage guys i can't encourage enough how important it is or emphasize enough rather to work backwards know exactly what you're looking for before you start looking for it and i think once that once you get into that habit you'll start to identify different trends, different patterns. And yes, some of the, some of the messages in each aspect of the, of the theme might be universal, but actually might be very different when you look at where, where on the pitch you're working. So just something to consider there. But guys, you know, obviously myself, Gerard and Tony have shared a lot in here. 
Um, if there's anyone else that wants to maybe add anything or ask any questions or anything that's been discussed so far, then feel free to kind of raise your hands, put a request in. We'll, you know, we'll be glad to get your views as well. Um, but also, guys, just a quick reminder again, if you can follow myself, Gerard, uh, make sure you're here. Make sure you're here following us for any updates. We've got conversations taking place every Sunday. Um, just looking forward to continue continuity growing this in, this in the whole network of coaches that are hopefully going to get better at doing what they do by supporting one another in environments like this. I don't know whether that's a good sign or a bad sign, John. I think um, there's probably been a lot to take in on this one already. I don't know. No, it's really good. That. Really good. And I think even just a lot of the stuff you're saying there and, and Tony's points just outstanding, really. I mean, it just goes to the fact that just thinking really simply about what we do. I love the thing that he was saying around three practices and just in general, just the thought process of how can we get into that game as quickly as possible and make it look like not just the game, but their game versus, you know, just designing stuff that might be manufactured and might be too far away from the game for them. So, brilliant, brilliant stuff. Oh, it looks like we've got Ahmed. Yes, thank you so much for uh, the valuable information. And uh, I'm very pleased to participate. Uh, my question is, uh, do you think that uh, football coaching moved from the old school, which says uh, coach one thing at a time, uh, into the new or modern school that... Everything is uh, is interchangeable, uh, interfered together. So you can coach more than one skill in at at a, at one time. So you can't coach passing uh, apart from receiving, apart from running with the ball or uh, uh, the other skills. Uh, do you think that you have to uh, join all the skills together in one session, but you can just focus on uh, one of them. I think you can... I think there's been a paradigm shift between where everything used to be, you've got to only have one training topic, what are the key factors of those that topic, what's the goal, and you're going to only work on that if it's passing and receiving. But the reality is, is that in order to make that realistic or recognise the moments to... like, my, I remember my level two topic, I can still remember it now, was turning. But in order to develop turning within the practice, you've still got to create a realistic game because it's not always on to, to be able to turn. So how when can the player, how when can the players recognise different ways to turn and be able to turn around an opponent or find solutions? And it's how you create that. And I think we're going from potentially one paradigm which was very isolated very blocked to now probably more more and more game like more interleaving information we're working on principles a lot of stuff is probably i think tony will probably agree with this i'm sure a lot of stuff is repackaged it used to be called key factors now it's called something else and i think a lot of the times things get relabeled but we're probably talking about similar stuff or the same stuff but i think you know, for me, it's more creating an environment where you're designing learning experiences. So, yes, you want to work on a particular principle or, or whatever it may be. You've got to focus for the session. But, you know, again, it's where you're shining the light to more than others. 
But in order to achieve that, you've got to have, like we talk about in our club, we always say, you, you know, you've got to create a problem and manage the opposition, you know, to create a problem in order for your team to solve it. I remember years ago, we were told that you'd only coach one team in the practice, which is an interesting debate as well, because then does that mean that I don't coach the other kids? Whereas the reality in your club is that you'd coach you'd coach your team, you'd coach everyone, and hopefully you're individualising your coaching. And I think what we would do is we'd try to create an opposite problem for players to solve. So there's a count, there's a main sort of principle, if you like, the main focus principle or principles, but then you've also got counter principles. So if we're trying to find ways to play forward and and play through a press, the counter principle would be how do they try and catch the ball? It could be like if it's if you're going really specific on a roadmap of a field, how do we how do we build and construct our attack from the goalkeeper as an example? Well, then the counter principle might be how do the opposition uh, try and press you, and how do you play through the press, and how do they and how do they set up in different ways? So again, there'll be different strategies of how they'll try and hunt for the ball, and as a result of that, the players will have to come up with different strategies and solutions on how they play through that pressure. And I think that's where again there'll be other things that we're working on within that that will naturally come out. Hopefully, there's always an end product to everything we're doing. There's, you know, Tony mentioned about attack v defence, which has got a lot of things in it, and he's absolutely right. I love attack v defence. And again, you'll be getting finishing, you'll be getting other actions. You might not necessarily be talking about those as much, but you're designing a realistic environment where they're gaining learning experiences. And I think we are shifting towards that way. Some were maybe there already. And they already got to the party earlier than others. But I think what we've got to make sure we do is that we don't just put them in these environments and don't support them. Because there's a, there is a danger that I see a lot of coaches just let the kids play, which is great. But then equally, some kids do still need a little bit of support. So it's just recognising how and when you do that, how you give support. You'd always have to give answers. Ideally, you lead with more questions than answers. But kids still need your support and guidance or challenges versus just standing there and saying nothing because the game is the teacher. And I think that's where we've got to be careful. Hopefully, if they're just playing the game, they don't, you know, not learn anything anyway. Hopefully, you can't do any harm. But what I'm trying to say is that there's still a place, you know, I'm sure Tony's seen this at academy level where there's just people just purely silent on the side, but kids are clearly struggling. And I think that might be a topic for another uh you know, session like this, but yeah, I think there's there is that paradigm shift. But I think you've got to still think about where does the coach fit within that. Uh, thank you, Gerard. I, I have an opinion about uh, correction strategies, which you, which a coach uh, has to use, especially with the youth players. So there are a lot or a variety of methods that you can uh, you can use, but I think that you have to use. A mix of them because the players are different uh, in their, uh, you know, in their skills. So sometimes you have to give instructions. Sometimes you have to explain. Sometimes you have to give or to model. Uh, sometimes you have to use guided discovery. So you have to uh, to try to el- uh, elicit the the answer from the player. Sometimes you have to use a question and answer method. 
And I, th- I think also in modern football, we have to use uh, video analysis and uh, let the, the boys watch, uh, watch the game uh, using the video and discuss with them their mistakes or uh, how they can improve. I, I don't like to make it or call it misca- mistakes, but with the, with the boys, they have to watch. Uh, it, uh, it's really important when they, uh, they watch their performance and you start discussing with them what they can see. Because sometimes uh, during the session, it's uh, difficult that you collect all the boys uh, for one scene to discuss and take the questions and answers, and this is time-consuming. So uh, I, I think that it's very important that you have one, at least one session uh, in the meeting room uh, a week, uh, sit with the boys, uh, let them watch uh, their uh, performance, and discuss with them uh, what you want. Thank you very much for this space. Uh, I am enjoying and uh, Goodbye. No, thank you. Great points. And yeah, absolutely. Everything should be. goes back to knowing your players Mm. and individualise them. When's the best moment to interview with a person? Because it might not always be live. Dan had said preferred some stuff where for him, it was he preferred on the breaks. And he would actually decide how when he received feedback or corrections or whatever. Uh, Whereas other players, you can speak to them. You can drive by and do something. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think it depends, and hopefully that's you know knowing your players and knowing what players will need what and when and how much is too much. And I think a, a most important thing of all, you've probably seen this working in. Uh, you're in Saudi Arabia right now. Yes, I am in Saudi Arabia. Do you do you know Sergio? Sergio Bernas. Yeah. Yeah, that's my friend. Yeah, say hi to Sergio for me. I worked with him in in Morocco. He's a 17s coach. Yeah, thank you. I will. He's very happy now because uh, today we took the the Asian uh, Championship under 23 and he's uh, the assistant coach. Yes, yes. (laughs) No, so almost Sergio's great because he goes into top-level detail of everything being individual, but he's really big on connection. Yeah, you know, so I worked really uh, very close from him. He was uh, under 23 head coach in my club and I am under 19 head coach in the same club. Oh, brilliant. Say hi to him for me. Thank you. Thank you. I will. Now, I think some great points there, Joe. You know, obviously, uh, something that you touched on as well there is that around the, the game be the teacher. And I, I just want to kind of put it out there. I think that saying in itself is absolute nonsense. Um, I think coaches who believe the game can be the teacher alone need to really consider what their role is in this process. Um, the game is not a teacher. The game, in my opinion, is just an environment. It's a medium in which we as coaches use to facilitate learning. Um, Ahmed, you know, I think you, said, you made some, you know, so first of all, it's a great question. Uh, and you made some great points there around the types of feedback and types of intervention styles that we might use. But one of the things I just want to kind of highlight with that uh, is that yes, we want to use a range of intervention styles, and yes, sometimes Q and A, the guided discovery process, even trial and error, can be quite time consuming. However, I would always encourage coaches to remember that what might be time consuming on the front end of a process might be very much the opposite on the back end of that, especially as they start to develop a better understanding of what it is they are doing, 
how to apply it, where it, where, when and where to apply it, why they even apply it. Um, so I, think I would really strongly encourage coaches to think about how do we actually check that our players are understanding all those factors, all those considerations, so that they can become more equipped to actually make these decisions under pressure when it matters most. I think we we, we fall into a real danger of using you know constant instructions for, for players. Um, and yes, there is an argument that says through in- instruction the players will increase performance, but there isn't much research that I'm aware of that actually points to those players actually being able to have a long-term retention and develop a learning around what it is that has been spoken about. So I think just something to really kind of consider around that as well. Um, but there's been a lot of lot of key points brought up in this conversation, and I think I think it's really important that. Again, we keep having these conversations, we keep connecting, we keep we keep growing as a network of coaches, um, supporting one another. And I think that, you know, it's good to see that we've got people, like I said, you know, Ahmed from Saudi Arabia, people from all over the world getting involved in these conversations, sharing different insights, different experiences uh, from different parts of the world, whether they're working in the male game, the female game, grassroots, or in a more elite envir- environment. Um, and on that note, guys, just a quick reminder, myself and Jared are here each week taking on questions and um discussing it in, in these spaces so if you have any questions topics or anything that you want to add or hear discussed on the show please feel free to get in touch let us know make sure you're following us um and just a final one guys you know i just want to thank everyone again for being with us this evening um i will hopefully be running a webinar uh, this time next month or in, in about three or four weeks around the practice spectrum and some different intervention styles so if you're interested in that at all please feel free to drop me a dm here on twitter at the coaches net or on, on even on Instagram if you're listening to this or, um, outside of this space um, at the Coaches Network, or you can drop us an email on info at thecoachesnetwork.co.uk. Um, we are going to continue having these conversations. Again, thank you for everyone that's been involved. Um, and that's me. Gerald, over to you, man. No, thank you so much. Happy Father's Day. Have a great rest of the weekend. Really hope there's some stuff that's maybe inspired more curiosity. And if you're looking for anything else, you know, keep tuning to some of the stuff that we're we're sharing, and especially the podcast with Yaz Coaches Network. You learnly where you can access digital sports coach education courses around a lot of these topics and more. Um, so yeah, just stay curious, everyone, and really have a great rest of the weekend. Awesome. Take care, guys. Have a good one. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care.